Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Welcome to UCI Law Talks. I'm Stephen Lee, a professor here at UC Irvine Law School, and I'm your host for this episode of UCI Law Talks. Our guest today is Jose Padilla. He is the executive director of the California Rural Legal Assistance. Uh, And we're here to talk about the topic of equity and justice in our food system. Welcome, Jose. Um, Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to have you here. Uh, For the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with your organization, uh, would you mind saying a little bit about what it is exactly that CRLA does? Yeah. Well, California Rural Legal Assistance uh, was started in... 1966 as part of Lyndon Johnson's um, War on Poverty. And the idea then was that, obviously the idea was that poverty could be eliminated. Um, as we well know, that's, uh, that ideal will always be there uh, in this country. But the idea was that that, that war, um, if it wasn't going to eliminate poverty, it could give access to the poor, to the civil justice system. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was that in, in those days that um, poor people uh, were very much impacted by civil laws, but they had no access. Mm-hmm. Um, on the criminal side, if there was a public defender system, there could be access as a matter of law. On the civil side, there was none. And so the ideal, the idea that um, poor people in this country could access the courts as part of that war on poverty, was where it started. And so it was started then um, through OEO. And so CRLA, uh, its founders thought, well, why don't we do a legal aid for the rural poor in California? Interestingly, the founder it was a corporate lawyer out of O'Melveny and Myers by the name of James Lorenz. And he thought that in rural California, just the same way that the wealthy could secure powerful corporate counsel to represent its interests, that the rural poor could also have corporate counsel representing its interests. So he pulled together not only lawyers, but also community organizers to form the first board of CRLA in 1966. And so CRLA then had as its founding board those are people who know Cruz Reynoso, the first Latino Supreme Court Justice of the California Supreme Court. Justice Reynoso was on that first founding board. The union organizer Cesar Chavez was on the founding board. Dolores Huerta was on the founding board. The Filipino organizer that called the first grape strike in, in the state in the 60s, Larry Itleon, was on that board. And so CRLA begins with the idea that you can have access to civil legal aid in rural places through a corporate law firm. And then CRLA began with 10 neighborhood offices in, from the south uh, in Imperial County, where I was born and raised, all the way up north, north of Sacramento. And the idea was that in those neighborhood places, you could have offices where poor people could go in and secure their rights. So uh, I was wondering if you could expand on the particular nature of the challenges uh, facing farm workers. So obviously, uh, there is a whole history of a struggle across industries in the United States, but I think that the farm worker struggle is unique. And 
why was it CRLA was necessary to serve those particular needs? What was it that uh, that needed to be addressed? Well, the interesting thing about uh, when Sierra began, Sierra began, began with the idea that even among the rural poor, or actually among the poor, within the poverty communities, there would always be those who were more impoverished. There were always going to be those who were more hidden, who were more afraid, who were more... And the idea that when you started doing, dealing with the poor, that you could help those communities that were more difficult to reach became a, a standing principle for us. So that, when we, so that when we began, the idea was, of course we're going to serve all the rural poor. We're going to help those who are unemployed. We're going to help all of those who are on welfare. We're going to help all of those who are, are, are tenants in the housing. All of that was traditional legal aid work. But then they said, but in rural, there are some who are a little more impoverished. And those are the farm workers within the poor. And so it began early on, Sierra began with the realization that we had to be serving the ones that were going to be more on the margin. And inter interestingly, over time, that idea that you're going to serve the individual worker, the individual person and the individual family, and then you're going to step back and ask the question, in these impoverished communities, who are more uh, segregated, who are more discriminated against, who, and then, and then you answer that question, then it leads you to serving different communities within uh, the, the rural poor. And so conceptually, so then what happened was when CRLA then started serving the, remember the farm worker was more impoverished in the general rural poor pop population. Since that time over time, it has led us to look at very distinct issues with that concept of mind. You know, we were the first legal aid uh, to look at um, uh, sexual harassment among farmworker women within, farm worker within the farmworker sector. Uh, the farmworker community, women suffer differently. The whole idea that women are sexually harassed, it's not an idea, it's a, the reality of sexual harassment in agriculture. We began looking at it, why? Well, because we understood that within agriculture, the power dynamics were such that if male supervisors could take advantage of women workers, they would do it. And it's, a re and it's just, it's a reality. The idea that within the farm worker community, there may be those who are discriminated against in Mexico, and when they come here, they're discriminated by Mexican supervisors the way they're discriminated in Mexico, led us to, for example, work with indigenous workers. One quarter of California agriculture is picked by indigenous workers who come from Guatemala, Oaxaca, we, we have helped them differently because within that sector, they also get discriminated against. Right. So, so, so CRLA uh, has always had that as part of it, and, and farm workers have always been there because they are part of that, that in ag, the ag sector, they're the ones that are the most marginalized there. In California agriculture, again, it, was an it started off as an, it was, it was not Mexican. It, uh, that labor force began African-American, poor white, Mexican, and over, the, over time, it has become, because of the migration, has become more and more and more Mexican. In, in our communities we were raised, there were also Asian um, uh, farm workers. There right, were you mentioned yeah, the, yeah. the Filipino farm workers. Filipino farm workers in our communities, they, um, um, there were, there was, it was interesting, um, Chinese farm workers, um, 
Chinese communities on the border were very, very real mm-hmm. on the Mexican side, but then we would see them also coming into you know, our um, uh, county on the, on the border. But the idea that you use the immigrant workforce when it's needed, you bring them in to do the work, the hardest work. And so, and for us, by the time we got into this kind of justice work, we um, uh, have always looked for within that, those, that rural poverty community, we deal with all, and then we deal with those who are suffering differently. We've also gotten into LGBT issues right. because we see that with that community, there's a different discrimination against that um, person or student, et cetera. So, so anyway. one of the things that's really interesting about what you're saying is that within the agriculture industry, there is this hierarchy that exists. I mean, people think that, oh, uh, those are just Mexicans who do the work, and uh, they talk about that category as if it's a homogeneous group. But actually, it's a very heterogeneous group, as you mentioned. Yes. I mean, even within that, there's a hierarchy as between whites and Mexicans who are Spanish speakers, and then the indigenous population. And then, of course, along other axes as well, uh, namely uh, uh, sexuality and LGBT identity. Uh, there's this other element to your comments that are really interesting as well because it speaks to this larger story of agricultural exceptionalism that uh, you know, low-wage work is difficult and we're going to provide some protections, but even the few protections we provide to other workers in other industries, we're just going to not apply to farm workers. Uh, you know, to what extent... I mean, it just strikes me that some of the things that are even challenging from your perspective is just the sheer geography of, of, of rural protection. I mean, the, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to represent people in communities that are separated by, you know, dozens, you know, hundreds of miles, as opposed to, you know, you think of, you know, restaurant workers who are all living within this condensed community. Like, what is it like to represent people in this really rural community? Well, uh, you, you're totally right that geography presents another issue of access uh, as, a, as a problem but also, as a, it's, just a, it's a challenge. And, and, and um, in, in rural place, uh, you, you're right. Sometimes it's um, um, in instances, for example, when, when we have been in downturns and the CRLA board of directors thinks that we need to close certain offices because resources aren't there. Somebody on the board will say, but wait a minute, uh, Jose. Isn't it true that if we close the El Centro office, that community of 30,000 poor will not go 80 miles to a legal aid office in Coachella or Riverside? The reality that you have to be in that space and stay in that space uh, in order to provide uh, service is critical. And for us, one of the things that, 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 that we, we understand is that once you pull out a particular community like that, that are real isolated like that, they will never get access. Uh, and so interestingly, within our network, we have kept the 20 offices in existence, even when it means that there will be one lawyer serving 30,000 poor people. Uh, let me give you a sort of, a, let me step back and talk about disproportionality of burden. Uh, when we're talking about access and how um, um, it differs when you're talking about um, urban, rural, um, or you're talking about lawyers in the country. Uh, let me give you some um, statistics, and I'm not going to be uh, good at this, but some people think that there are too many lawyers in this country. Mm-hmm. Why do they say there are too many lawyers in this country? Well, because when you really look at the numbers, 
I've seen numbers that say that for every 300 uh, American uh, residents, there's a lawyer for every 300. When you look at the state of California and you talk about the work that we do, the civil legal aid lawyer, you then start seeing numbers that say that for every 10,000 person in civil legal aid in the state of California, there's one civil legal aid, legal aid lawyer. When you look at rural, and you look at some of my places, I've, been, I've had offices where you'll have one lawyer to 35,000 when we can't afford the second lawyer. On average, in rural, one attorney to 18,000 poor people. And then you look at the farm worker, it's one attorney for 25,000 farm worker. So once you start getting into access, you start seeing things like that. But what does that mean? It means that when you end up in a space that is so geographically different, difficult to serve, you start to stay there because in those communities, if you're not there, they will never get the access. And so I've been in situations where my board of directors has said, well, so you have to keep those eight offices open with one attorney until we are able to add the second and the third lawyer. But it just it talks about how difficult it is to be able to try to serve those, those communities that, were, that are so isolated. Right. Now, there's another aspect of isolation, and I heard it time and time again during the symposium, and that's talking about the access given to the immigrant worker who is not documented. And here you're referring to the Food Equity Symposium. that The Food Equity Symposium right. that you asked me to, uh, to, uh, to learn from. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and thank you very much. It's been and a, to it educate, an honor for me. And to educate us. Yeah, yeah. But, but it was such an honor for me to be a part of it because I started listening to and hearing how um, incredible work is being done globally, uh, but also the different kind of work that is being done by uh, folks with, you know, with urban gardens, the students that we're talking about in Santa Ana. Uh, the work that's being done here, uh, talking about how uh, you know professors are working with people in home on homelessness issues, at the same time they're using those experiences and 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 um, bringing scholarship to it. But for me, it was very inspiring to see all of that being done here at the UCs. But one of the things is the the, the whole notion of who's going to serve that undocumented worker. The reality of it is that um, in California agriculture, we always say that fifty percent of the worker is not documented. Um, one of the professors speaking said that in some sectors, people believe that it's even 60, 70%. That worker, even though that worker can be hired to do work in agriculture, to do all of that at the very bottom rung, that worker cannot be represented by organizations like ours uh, because, of, because of the politics behind it. And I've always said that, you know, and somebody else mentioned, one of the students mentioned that poverty is political. Mm. Uh, the reality of it is, yes, it is. And so even though the big ag, uh, ag sector can hire that worker, uh, it doesn't mean that when you're providing a civil legal aid lawyer to help in securing access to the courts to that worker, that the federal government will allow it. And so that's one of the big challenges that we uh, have been uh, sort of engaging now since the late mid-90s, late 90s. But that's why it's, it's so, so important for us to be able to educate that community who wants to do well by these justice issues. So as, as a problem solver, then, it becomes really important uh, selecting the right kind of paradigm for solving the problem. So one paradigm would be this sort of immigration frame that you talked about, and I think all the statistics that you mentioned sound right to me, and it confirms what I've read on my own. 
Uh, but then the other frame is the one that uh, brought you to our conference, which is the food justice frame or the food law frame. And in that frame, consumers have played a really important part. I mean, as you know, you can't, uh, you, know, you can't visit uh, you know, Yelp without running into consumer reviews. And you see uh, people over social media deriving all sorts of status and pleasure from their food uh, that they consume. And I guess... In recent years, social justice advocates have been trying to inject labor conditions into that discussion. I mean, I think the most obvious example would be uh, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers really trying to inject uh, farm worker conditions into the consumer mindset. So I guess one question I have for you, Jose, is you've said in the past, if you eat, you should care about those workers who are paid slave wages. Mm -hmm. And that seems right to me. But to what extent is the problem one of the public not knowing about farm worker exploitation and to what extent is the problem of the public knowing but not really caring about farm worker exploitation? Mm-hmm. Well, I th- well, I think it's both. I think it's both. I mean, I, I think that there is going to be a part of the public that believes that in this country that the people who feed us deserve to have access to courts, but also to find their justice. There are some people who believe that when those monuments said, our founders said, or people put on those monuments that justice was for all, some people actually believe that all means all. But there will be some that, 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 that don't believe that way. Uh, I think that there is the need to be educating the consumer all the time because there will always be those who you can reach. There are going to be those who just don't believe that uh, or, or do not care to, to understand who was who touched that tomato they ate that day. They don't care to think, you know, who was the woman who cut those flowers at that orchid place that ended up on their table. There are going to be, it's going to be that consumer who for them, this is not for them. But it doesn't mean that we don't continue educating all uh, because at some point you will find, I think, consumers who will, who will look at these justice issues and think that they can make a difference. To me, what's amazing is that effort by the Immokalee workers challenging, you know, those consumers in Florida uh, to think about, I think it's in the tomato industry, exactly. to think that, that tom- in that tomato industry, um, that worker was working under these conditions. That woman farm worker was suffering sexual harassment in these, con- you know, and this is the condition of that work. And if our consumer can think that when they're shopping in that store and, and something is labeled as being, um, um, ha- have an equity label, that they will buy there, and if it doesn't have that label, that they will not, I think that that is possible. Um, I think that you, the scholars, study that, whether it is or not. But I think the effort to teach um, we who eat about what led to that onion on that plate, what led to that lettuce on that plate, and to think that there were workers who touched that lettuce, who then you know, put it on that crate, that got on that truck, that ended up in that market, ended up on that plate, when somebody can put that there and say, you know, you ate this, but why don't you ask about the worker at the other end? That is the the challenge that we all have. 
And I think it's an incredible challenge. But I think it's a challenge that we all engage, including the scholarship. And, and so today at the symposium conference, I was so um, inspired by the idea that scholarship is talking to the organizer, is talking to you know the community that's trying to figure out how they eat healthily. Right. I just think that that's what scholarship, that's what the university is about in its ideal. It's not above the community. It is the community. And for a public institution to say that it, it's going to invest in that and it's going to pay attention to the scholarship and to the people who are out there working, trying to change the inequities there, and then you're looking at it globally, and then you're looking at it locally. I think that that's very inspirational in the leadership that y- you here are exhibiting. And so um, when, when now that I realize what you're doing, I am inspired by the idea that we here can feed the world if we do it right. But in feeding the world, we don't forget that there's a justice to be done as we feed the world. Well, and the justice element, I think, is important because I think for a number of years, people just, many people, uh, just assumed that uh, changing the food system was a matter of presenting information to the public, nutritional information. And so if you think about changes in law, the Affordable Care Act, one of the most significant changes was that it required many restaurants, chain restaurants, to disclose the caloric content of their food menu items so that people would then... Uh, not be inclined to eat foods that would increase the the likelihood of a heart uh, heart related disease, but of course uh, that doesn't at all get to these other ideas of of justice and the way in which people invested in buying these certain types of food. Just to give you an example, you know people love farmers markets. People go to the farmers markets all the time. There's a great one here in Irvine. Uh, people ask, well, is it? Uh, organic and what sort of pesticides were used. And I've never once heard someone ask, well, who picked this? Yeah. Or what is your uh, uh, employment structure? Or do you provide adequate housing? And I think a part of that is that this agrarian ideal exists in this country where people love farmers. There's a there's sort of folk heroes in this country, folk heroes, that we want this sort of romanticized family picking this food. But of course, that doesn't at all represent the reality of the farm industry, which is very corporatized and uh, massive and uh, you know, inviting all the problems and generating all the problems that your organization tries to address. And, and actually with that, let me transition a little bit because many of our listeners are, are law students and aspiring, uh, aspiring lawyers. And one of the things that's interesting about your uh, journey into this, into this work has been that you graduated in 1978 from uh, UC Berkeley. And then I, you've also said that it was either going to be the UFW or CRLA that you joined. And you've been at CRLA for, what, 40 years now almost. So could you think back to 1978? And I guess for our students out there, did you ever once have the thought, maybe I should do something else? Or was it just unambiguous to you that this is what you were destined to do? Uh, For me, I started with the idea that there was a responsibility for many of us who were the first generation to get into the universities and then to, to go on to these, to these professions. I understood that I had been blessed in that way, that my grandparents suffering as farm workers, my father having been a micro farm worker, had given me the opportunity to all of a sudden go to these prestigious schools, Stanford, 
Berkeley. And having understood that, I thought, well, my responsibility uh, is to give a little something back. And it was a very simple idea that I had was I'm going to give five years back to the rural community that raised me. And so I thought, I'm going to take my lawyering skills that I learned at Berkeley, and I'm going to go and put them into practice in Imperial County, where I was born and raised. And, and that's what I did. And my goal was to do five years, and I will have done, been done with my obligation responsibility. Uh, but sometimes life doesn't turn out that way mm-hmm. uh, when you end up in those spaces. Uh, and so, make a, a long story short, I ended up thinking that I was leaving. Uh, my wife and I were getting ready to go to Los Angeles. I was going to be either a rich lawyer, um, practice immigration law, and I became the state director. Uh, with my wife's permission, of course. Uh, but the idea then was that you walk into that, I walked into that space thinking, well, I can continue to do um, the work that I was only going to do for five years, but I can now do it for another five. And it became my life's work. But it never was intended that way. But I, have, I learned something, I guess, a long, long time ago. Um, that there, I, And I tell law students this. There are two times in your life... Um, when you make decisions that are not um, based on something that you're thinking, um, when you fall in love, <laughs> you make your decision from the heart. Mm-hmm. And at that point, wherever that takes you, works or doesn't work, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you followed the heart. When you make your decision about what you're going to do with your life, there are so many things that make you think, well, I'm going to go to work over there because I think I need that uh, for prestige or I need it for, you know, because of compensation and, or money. It, it, at the end, I have always, now I realize that that life decision, you also make it with your heart. And then whatever happens next, at the end of that journey, that legal journey, that justice journey, you'll look back and say, you know what, I followed my heart, and you were true to that truth of yourself. And it's, interestingly enough, that's what happened to me. I kept on thinking, oh, I'm only going to do another year. And I said, oh, two years, and now it's been. You're totally correct, uh, a professor that is nearly 40. But I don't look back. It was, uh, and I don't even say it was preordained. I just said, you know what, I began this. I learn the distinction between giving a worker um, legal access and giving a worker justice. I learned that difference, and I wouldn't do it the same. But it's just one of those things where it's very difficult for students today, given how costly it is to get a legal education, to be able to do what some of us have done without that burden. We didn't have the same burden. But on the other hand, wherever um, you end up, you can always give it back. I was uh, listening to law professors here who had, were doing their scholarship now, but they, had, they were doing, hadn't been doing work with Friends of Farm Workers, Georgia Legal Services. And they did their work, and I'm sure they struggled, and yet here they are doing scholarship work. But the point is, is that you follow, you follow that passion that you have, and law can take you to some incredible places. 
And I think that's all I did was that I followed that, and I was lucky to have a partner who allowed me to do that. So you mentioned economic costs, the costs of going to law school, but there are also emotional costs too. I think that in a lot of ways, your life represents the exception because for a lot of lawyers and social justice organizations, the burnout rate is very high. So I was wondering, over the course of these 40, nearly 40 years, you must have encountered a lot of lawyers under your supervision who feel that burnout, and they come to you and say, Jose, I need to go do something else. In that moment, what do you say to that lawyer? Do you try and persuade them to stay and inspire them, or do you just sort of give them the blessing and say, thank you for everything you've done? Yeah. When a lawyer is, and I've had, uh, you know, I have those lawyers come to me, and interestingly, uh, many of them will come in very apologetically almost as if they feel they've let you down. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and very recently, it was a lawyer who, uh, who was telling me that she was going to resign for a lot of reasons, uh, personal reasons. And I've always just said, thank you. I, I said, because not everybody will work in this space and be able to do it uh, for a long period of time. And so the lawyer who can give me th- three years or can give, not, they're not giving it to me, to, that, to our communities, three years, five years. I always... Tell them that at some point, we'll see each other again. I've run into uh, lawyers who have left me. Some of them come back. But I've met lawyers who have done work for us in these places where they're making a difference. There was a lawyer who had worked for us who had been doing um, water work in another space, uh, came in and did water work for us at the, at the, the legislative level. Um, a couple of years ago... Um, uh, I two years ago, uh, I was down in Riverside County. We had done this incredible case on a Native American reservation where these farm workers were living in horrendous uh, living conditions. Federal case, we won the case. Uh, we had been working with uh, the county and county lawyers. And, um, and Riverside County had just uh, done this incredible mobile home, park case, home, mobile home park. And I was there for the inauguration of a mobile home park. And there was a, a lawyer for the county who was talking about this great thing that they had done, and I thought it was great, and mentioned the fact that even though the redevelopment funding from California had dried out, and they were almost going to stop that project, somebody made a decision to give them the money. And so after we're done, I went up to that lawyer, I said, excuse me, what, what exactly happened? He goes, I don't know exactly what happened, but there was this person working in the governor's office. Uh, I think her name was Martha, and she said that, and, and, and uh, we talked to her, and she said, oh, I think we can take care of your situation. They ended up with a special funding to hook up this mobile home park to the infrastructure of this um, nearby community so that this mobile home park could have water. That person had worked for me a number of years before, and she was now in the governor's office and remembered that work, and that community was able to secure all of that money because she never forgot why she had been doing this work. You never know when uh, you're going to find uh, people who leave you and they end up in these places and they still will have an opportunity to give back. Mm. So to me, I always tell uh, young, uh, uh, young law students or lawyers, at some point in time, you will have the opportunity to give it back. One day you will be asked by a CLA lawyer if you can represent those 30 undocumented workers that we can't represent as we're representing one or two. People will be in those corporate law firms when they will be making decisions about where does that Cypre money go? 
and they'll remember, oh, I remember when I was at the UC Law School, heard somebody say that I could play a role. My law firm is going to give that Cypre money too, and then it, it can be to a legal aid in their community. Mm. There will always be places for us to play those roles. But I think that notion that a lawyer um, can be, uh, can do good out there in the world um, around justice issues, um, that's important to be taught at the law school, that we all have to be part of that society. The lawyer can do those things. Um, and I think that that's, 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 that's part of the ethics that, that, that law schools should, should teach anyway. So one, one of the things that's really uh, so apparent about you, Jose, whenever uh, you, someone hears you talk is that you're endlessly enthusiastic, upbeat, optimistic. And you exhibit all those traits despite the fact that working conditions for farm workers today are still as difficult and frustrating uh, as they were 50 years ago when CRLA was born of the war on poverty. Has there ever been a time in the last 40 years when you just felt like, I can't get through this? Mm-hmm. And then how did you get through that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to say, you know, first, we're the most investigated legal aid in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. because, and, and actually, I say that as a badge of honor, um, because when you get involved with the kind of work that we get involved with, you, it becomes political work. And, uh, and it's, I, I tell people... It's, and secondly, I tell people that when I go through all those federal investigations, I've gone through those federal investigations, when I was forced to testify in front of a subcommittee in Congress, you know, sometimes you don't, um, um, you don't think there's anything left. Um, different people will find different um, inspiration in different ways. Sometimes, um, interestingly, I will find it in a place like this. I will remember uh, a, a young student person, like a 17-year-old a high girl, school talking, girl, high school girl yeah. talking about, passionately, about why they're trying to do good health, good food, justice in her, in her community. And I will think about, that's why I'm doing it. Sometimes I'll close my eyes and remember the client that I helped to save a home when that client knew that they had lost a home. And I remember closing my eyes, I think, I remember Mr. Hilario Gonzalez crying to me and saying, I knew I was going to lose my house. What troubled me is that my best friend was the one that was selling that to me. And I wanted him his house. And I can close my eyes and remember that. And so, and sometimes when I have nothing, uh, you know, you, sometimes you think about the suffering that your parents went through. Sometimes you find religion. I've told people that I found religion really fast when I think I've lost faith. <laughs> and then I throw it up in the air, you know, and I... Um, and once in a while, I'll slip into prayer. I always believe that if you're doing justice work from the heart, that you will always find an inspiration or a reason why to continue. Uh, and um, to me, sometimes, I, we showed the video today. Every time I see that video and I hear that farm worker man saying, I didn't do this for me. I did it because of my child. I thought that by doing this, my child will have a healthier life. Every time I hear that man's voice, that's why I do it, because I want to hear it again. And I've seen that video 30 times, and every time I hear that voice, I said, that's why I'm doing it, because there will always be suffering. It's a question of when you listen. It's a question of when you're paying attention. Say, now it's my turn to do something about that. And sometimes you carry those faces with you. And that's not something coming from me. That's, that's Gandhi. 
Mohandas Gandhi had once said that when you're in doubt about decisions you have to make in your life, you close your eyes and you think of the first person you've ever seen in your life, and you ask yourself, will my decision impact that face that I carry with me? In my 40 years of work, I carry the one face of that one man who was in that office, who was going to lose his house. And at the very, very end of the day, CRLA was there, and the man ended up with his home, and I can close my eyes, and I can still see his face. And it's just that because in this justice work, you will find that inspiration, and sometimes it's with a colleague next to you. Sometimes it's with the next worker coming in and say, you know why I did this? It was not about me. It was because I wanted another worker to be defended and be find justice the way you found justice for me. That one will carry me for a month, you know. Uh, sometimes I have a, a, a paralegal who'll call me up, Jose, this woman who I just saved, I just saved her home. She wants to thank you. And I listen, and the woman thanks me. That'll carry me for a month. So sometimes you will find the inspiration from people you've helped. You'll find it from young voices who are inspired to be justice workers just like, like you are. They believe in food justice right here in your community. I listen, I go, I can, I can do this. I'm inspired by that young person. And sometimes I come into these conferences and I say, I want to be inspired. Now. So all I need to do is hear those two voices of those two young, that 17-year-old, that young woman who said I was shy, but not no more. I look at that, I go, you know Amazing, what? Yeah. yeah, there's going to be another generation of people believing in justice the same way that we do. And then they came to a law school and were given a voice to teach us not to give up. That is inspiring. So I want to thank you for having given that space at this university for that voice at the same time that you're giving the voice to the scholarship, the same time that you're giving the voice to the organizer. That, to me, is what these spaces are for. And for the UC to invest resources into that, that's what universities, public universities, should be about. Well, Jose, I want to thank you for spending some time with us here to educate us and to share your thoughts on food justice and the legal profession. Uh, we'll end right there, but I hope that you'll come back and spend some more time with us here at UCI Law. Well, if I get an invitation, I think I might. Well, well, well thank you very it. much, Professor. I really uh, enjoyed, uh, enjoyed what you're doing, but I continue to come. I want to come to learn more. Thank, thank you very much, Jose. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks. Produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.